Greetings, Trinity family. It's a joy to be together um, uh, at a distance and knowing that we're going to be together for many of us in person next week. Look forward to that day. But right now, our day is going to be focused on Exodus chapter 4. Hopefully you, your family, read Exodus 4 before this message. And so we're going to consider the whole chapter. But right now, I'm going to read from verses 10 through 17. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Let's take a moment to pray. God, as we come to this passage, it is filled with some challenging moments uh, to see, to understand, to apply to our lives. So God, I just would pray that you would be with the preaching of this, your word, that we would hear it, receive it, believe it, trust it, that you do good work in our hearts. God, I pray this all for your glory and for the good of your people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I have this musical scene in my head when reading Exodus 3 and 4. In Exodus 3, the, the stirring pulsating, building up score performed by the fullest in the best orchestra, matching the, the progression of the scene around the, the burning bush. God is here. God is on the move. And people will be rescued and Egypt will be struck down. The percussions are, are driving the beat. The strings are flying. The horns, they're soaring. Let's go. Let's go get the people and crush the enemies, this buildup of the orchestra as we go through Exodus 3. Then chapter 4. Like someone, someone knocking over uh, dominoes, the orchestra just falls apart into a crashing thud. The cymbals scatter all over the floor. The strings are screeching and then snapping and the horns are just blaring out. And all this beautiful music is now this chaotic sound that then whimpers into nothing. This is a hard chapter. It's challenging. And I find it hard for three reasons. One, Moses' reluctance and apprehension are staring at us. They are visible to see, and it's painful to watch. Two, God's 
godness, his his power, his otherliness, his sovereignty is on display and it's uncomfortable. He's like a live wire you can't handle. It's challenging, it's hard. And then number three, there are some very challenging portions. In the original language, like we read them and think, what, what is this really saying? And in its theology, and we read it and we think, well, no, what is this saying? It's a hard chapter. And we're going to wade out into these challenging waters of this chapter. But we do this with an underlying hope, even if it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that hope is this. That's, this is our aim together as we go through this chapter. Because God prevails, He prevails over nations, over principalities, over things we can't see, over things we can see, over human hearts, He prevails. Because God prevails, we can trust and follow Him through our whole lives. Now, that's a good statement, and I think one that many of us would agree to, but when we start to really think through the stickiness of that, the challenging aspect of God prevailing and its bearings on our lives, it becomes a little bit more uncomfortable. And so as we consider this together, we're going to be considering following the God who prevails with our very lives. So following the God who prevails will bring us to see these three things as we move through this chapter. Number one, this is going to help us see our apprehensions. Number two, it's going to help us see God's sovereignty. And number three, it's going to help us see grace beyond measure. So hopefully that will be an encouragement for us, even if we feel uncomfortable by this chapter. All right, let's dig in. Following the God who prevails will help us see our apprehensions. And so we're going to dip in here and look at Moses. Moses. Here we find Moses' third and fourth dodge. He's trying to dodge God and his call on his life to go back to Egypt and lead the people out of Egypt. Doesn't want to do it. I mean, that's just the raw reality here. And in chapter 4, we see his third attempt and fourth attempt to get out of what God has called him to do. He's voicing his apprehensions and objections to what God has called him to do. Objection number one we found in chapter three, it was really a question of who am I to go? So Moses is saying, who am I? I I can't go. And God reassures that and answers that question. Objection number two in chapter three is, well, who are you? So if I do go, who am I going to say sent me? And God once again answers that apprehension and objection. Well, in our chapter here, in chapter four, we find two more. The first one is in verse one, and it's Moses saying, they're not going to believe me. They won't believe me. And once again, we see God going through great lengths, at least from our perspective, these miraculous signs to demonstrate to Moses that, no, they are going to believe you because I'm going to be with you. And then objection number four, we find in verses 10 and then even double down in verse 13 is this. No, really, I just can't. Please send somebody else. We are left with this one very painful picture about Moses. He doesn't want to go. 
He doesn't trust God at his word. And he just doesn't want to go. We have visible manifestations of God. We have the God who is displaying his presence and power before Moses to, and calling Moses to go get his people and lead them up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this call is backed by these manifestations of God's presence and power most incredibly, most amazingly. And yet Moses still does not want to go. Moses is still like, yeah, please just send somebody else. Now, we may have one of two reactions when we consider this. Reaction one is we may think, Moses, what are you doing? Dude, just go. How can you be apprehensive? The rod is now a snake, and now it's a rod. You had a perfectly normal hand, and then you put it in your cloak, and you pull it out, and it was covered in disease, and then you put it back, and it's normal. Like, what more? The bush, it's burning, but it's not burning. Like, what more? And you might think to yourself, Moses, and you just want to shake him. You question him, you judge him. Or the other reaction you may have is that you realize that you probably would have put up a bigger fight than Moses to get out of what God was calling him to do. Now, when we see maybe our own levels of apprehension present in this passage, or maybe know that our levels of apprehension would be more, it it is helpful for us then to wrestle with a chapter like this. There's encouragement here. And on the flip side of that encouragement, there's this implied exhortation, if you will. First, the encouragement is this. God has grace for those who doubt. God has grace for those who are apprehensive. God has grace for those who are insecure or uncertain. God has grace for you if those feelings and if those realities wreck your heart more often than not. God has grace for you. In fact, it's pretty normal of you to have waves or seasons or moments in which those feelings seem to be very present in your heart and in your mind. So, in God's interaction with Moses, in his constant assurance and displaying of his presence and power and promise before Moses, please hear those same words in the sense that God doesn't change and that same gracious God who assured Moses is the same gracious God who assures our hearts. Now, that also comes with a little bit of an exhortation, and that's this. You, like Moses, you have nowhere else to go but to the God who calls. God bursts into Moses' life in a very radical way, calls him out from the life that he was living to the life that God would have for him to go and live and do, and Moses is apprehensive on that, but he has nowhere else to go. There's nothing else that will give him comfort for his soul and direction for his life than the God who calls. So, your call is to follow the God who calls, to follow God through faith in God, trusting God. Our following God is not following the strength of our faith, 
It's following the strength of the object of our faith, God. It's not the subjective feeling of our faith that determines our following God. It's the object of our faith. It's God that determines it. And that God is worth and worthy. He's worth it and he's worthy of your life and of your following. And he's worthy of you coming before him with the rawness of your heart and asking him to do good work in you. Makes me think of Psalm 139. Those last few words of that psalmist. The psalmist cries out, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Of nowhere else to turn but the God who calls. And he is gracious with us, even with apprehensive hearts. And we can even come to him with apprehensive hearts and say, search my heart and lead me away from my doubts or my fears or my insecurities or, or any grievous way in my heart. And God is gracious to do just that. So when we sit down and think about following the God who prevails, it helps us see that we will have apprehensions. We will have apprehensions. And in the midst of that, our apprehensions are calmed, even if uncomfortably so, by the second point, and that is following the God who prevails will help us see God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Here's the deal. God prevails, period. He prevails over nations, he prevails over systems. He prevails over institutions. He prevails over principalities. He prevails over the things we can't see. He prevails over the things we can see. He prevails over human hearts. He prevails over your heart. God's sovereign, and he prevails. Most of the time, we can think of that in a positive. But when we think of it fully, or at least in a fuller way, it can feel uncomfortable. In our passage, we find God prevailing or saying that he will be prevailing in these ways. And it's important for us to take note of them. The way that he goes about displaying his prevailing is first, he goes to assure Moses by declaring how he's going to prevail over Egypt. Over Egypt. And the ways that God assures Moses also anticipates for us what he's going to do in and with Egypt. So God's miraculous signs that he displays to Moses also direct our attention to see exactly how God's going to go about dismantling Egypt, their whole religious, cultist culture, their whole thing, their very identity, God is going to dismantle it, every aspect of it. When Moses gets to Egypt, we will explore these more fully, but there are a few things to take note now that shows God prevailing. So first thing that we find here is that God has Moses grab this staff, this rod. And God uses this rod in a miraculous way to assure Moses, but he's using the rod to undercut Egypt. 
See, Egypt uses a rod as a symbol of their power and authority. So Egypt's symbol of displaying their power, their authority over everything, they were the world power at the time, was a rod. And so God would use their very symbol to dismantle them. Secondly, we find with that rod, it turns into a snake, and then goes back to a rod. And then again, this is anticipating the first interaction between Moses and the, say, religious leaders of Egypt when he gets to Egypt, is that there's this whole rod-snake sort of um, square off. And in that way, God is totally undercutting the Egyptian magicians. I had to actually slow down and say that, because when you say it fast, you just sort of blend those two words together. So kids in your living room, say it really fast, Egyptian magicians. Anyway, sorry about that. Egyptian magicians... (laughs) bragged about how they could turn inanimate objects into living creatures. And God was going to do it in a way that was real and over them and crushing them. We also see the whole disease. Moses puts his hand in and pulls it out and it's got this skin disease over it. Puts it back into his cloak, pulls it back out, and it's totally healed. Egyptians had a whole deity system that believed in in the power to bring about diseases, but they didn't bring about any sort of healing or restoration. So God displaying that he can heal and restore shows his power is greater than the Egyptians' deities. And then we see with the water and the blood, Egypt treated the Nile as if it was a God who gave life. And God's going to show that he has power over the Nile. So everything that God is doing to assure Moses is also anticipating and displaying how he's going to obliterate everything about Egypt. Now, he will prevail. Prevail. And he will prevail over not only Egypt, but he's going to prevail over Moses too. Moses, at this point, in chapter 4, is now without excuse. The interchange, exchange back and forth with God has left him all the way painted into the corner. He has no more excuses. All we see is one who mistrusts God, who is so apprehensive of what God has called him to do that he's either doubting or mistrusting what God has said and displayed. He doubts that maybe God will be with him or that God will be able to do these things. Note, we read it at the beginning of this message, but we'll look again at verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Literally, the the nostrils of Yahweh burned and flared. Literally is what is said here. His his nostrils are flaring and burning. Any kid who who knew they went too far and got their dad angry or their mom angry and those nostrils flared, they knew. They knew they went too far. And here we see Yahweh's nostrils, sort of a word picture so that we can understand, are flaring. Yet, yet, 
in that flare, God didn't burn up Moses. He graciously provided Aaron. So God is going to prevail over Moses, over his weak and wobbly heart, over his apprehensions and doubts. He's going to prevail in his power, in his presence, and in his grace. He's going to prevail. Now, we see Moses go back to where he was living. He goes back to his father-in-law. Still isn't going to Egypt. Note that. He still hasn't gone to Egypt yet. And he actually goes and asks permission from his father-in-law, which on one level would be appropriate if he's living there, working there, raising his family there. But on another level, it's just sort of a thinly veiled dodging of what God has called him to do. Because we know this because in verse 19, God has to prod him along yet again. Let's look at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So maybe one of the, clearly one of the concerns that Moses had was his last interaction in Egypt. He killed a man and buried him in the sand, and he ran. He doesn't want to go back because he figures he's going to face the people who are seeking his life. And God assures him yet again that those people are no longer there. He's prevailing over Moses. So God prevails and will prevail over Egypt. And God prevails over those apprehensive hearts. The one that we see on display here is Moses. And, and we can take that and wrestle with that and think through that as we seek to understand what's happening in the story of Exodus and then apply it to our hearts, is that God prevails over even our hearts. Maybe you feel your heart is a wobbly mess. And maybe you beat yourself up for your own apprehensions. Or maybe you keep yourself down because of your own insecurities or your own fears or doubts. Because you, maybe you don't think God will care for someone like you. That God won't be gracious for somebody like you. There is some really good news here on display in God's sovereign prevailing, even over Moses' heart, is that he, is, he does so graciously. He keeps providing. He keeps displaying his character and goodness. He prevails over Moses' heart. He prevails over our hearts. And this is good news because our hearts are, they can be a mess. The Bible says that our, the heart is deceitful above all things. We need something greater than our hearts. That good news progresses and expands over the pages of Scripture. And, and in 1 John 3, 19 and 20, I want you to be encouraged with these words. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Those words are overwhelming. God knows everything about your heart. He knows every dark corridor, every fleeting doubt, every apprehension, every fear, every lust, everything dark. He knows everything about your heart. And yet, 
knowing everything, he still displays that he is greater than your heart by his grace and his rescuing, redeeming, transforming grace in your life. He knows everything about you and doesn't toss you aside. Most of us, if we knew everything about each other, would probably like, hmm, I don't know about that person anymore. God knows you better than you know you. And he still has grace. He still gives grace beyond measure. He is greater than your heart, and thankfully so. Thankfully so. I rejoice that God prevailed over my heart. Now, in this passage, we see apprehension, we see sovereignty, and we see grace. We see grace in even uncomfortable ways. We see grace in the midst of hard parts of this chapter. And I want us to see that this grace is grace beyond measure. And even though it's grace beyond measure, it can feel uncomfortable at first. So there are a couple of things here that I want to address that are hard in this passage. But underneath the hardness of that, understanding what they're saying, is really the God of all grace, the God whose grace is beyond measure, and He is out there working to accomplish His good purposes. So there are some hard things here. The first one is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Consider verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, you see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God is sovereign. And this can be mysterious and uncomfortable for us, who are not sovereign. God is sovereign. And I know that a lot of ink has been spilt on trying to figure out what is going on about God hardening hearts. We will address this particular passage. So, the word for harden that we find here conveys the idea of Pharaoh keeping his heart hard against God and his people. Pharaoh's heart is hard against Yahweh and Yahweh's people. It's already hardened, and it's already unrelenting, and God's going to keep it that way. He's not going to let that slide. In fact, he's going to harden it all the more so that Pharaoh won't let his people go until God's sovereign purposes are fulfilled. But what's going on here? I mean, clearly the text is definitely saying God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But we know that God doesn't cause sin. God can't do that. So, so there's this tension that we feel with these words. Well, what's going on here? All right. Well, follow me on this. Pharaoh, in the Egyptian culture, Pharaoh was believed to be the incarnation of the Egyptian gods Ra and Horus. So whomever was the Pharaoh, they were the incarnation of Ra and Horus. 
The Egyptian system believed that the heart was the all-encompassing determining factor of a person and the most important heart in all of everywhere was the heart of Pharaoh because that's where Ra and Horus resided. They resided in Pharaoh's heart. So that means Pharaoh's heart ruled the cosmos. It was the all-encompassing ruler over everything, everywhere, according to the Egyptian system of belief. So, follow this. By showing his power over Pharaoh's heart, Yahweh was showing his power over everything the Egyptians believed and held onto their very identity. And God was set to totally obliterate and decimate and dismantle that and the rescuing his, his people out of the oppressive, evil slavery they were under. Like the signs that he gave Moses and the eventual plagues that we'll get to, God is going to destroy the entire belief system of the Egyptian people. Dismantling everything. Now, that's what's going on here. We know that God's sovereignty is over all things. We know he prevails over Egypt, over Moses, over our own hearts. And we know that the Bible does jump into the deep end of the pool of his sovereignty over our salvation. And we can read those challenging words in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But here, we need to keep in our context, God is about to dismantle the very nation oppressing his people. There's a big picture to that that connects to our whole story of the Bible, that God will dismantle the oppression of sin, death, and Satan to rescue his people. He'll do that sovereignly and graciously. Keep those things in mind. So that's one of those hard passages, but underneath it, once you get in there and you think it through in its context, we see grace beyond measure. And the other hard passage that we find is this strange interaction where it seems like Yahweh is going to kill Moses, or at least our translation gives us that indication. So this is the passage that is a little bit more challenging in the original language that I want to draw some light on because, again, it gives us grace beyond measure. Look again at verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met with him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Yeah, that's odd. As a preacher getting up, it's an odd one. It's a challenging one, one the world is going on. It seems like Yahweh is attempting to kill Moses. Well, one of the things I would first say is it's not necessarily Moses that is the focus here, but actually Moses' son. I know it's an odd story, but the language and the grammar here are challenging. But similar to understanding Pharaoh's hard heart and God's work in that, once we get into it, it's not nearly as bad. First, 
This is not about Moses. It's about Moses' son. It's about Moses' son. You won't find Moses' name in the original language in this portion. So it's just personal pronouns, and they're referring to something. But it's not referring to Moses. Also, secondly, we find Zipporah, who is Moses' wife and the mother of their children. Uh, We find Zipporah saying, um, the bridegroom of blood. Odd expression, but very woodenly and also more naturally, it would just simply mean blood relative, blood relative. And then thirdly, we have context that we have to understand. So just before this strange interaction, God says to Moses that gives the heads up, the warning of the very last plague, the the death of the firstborn. And it is there, as we are going to get there eventually, that we see then the Passover and the blood over the doorposts and the firstborn of Israel and the Hebrews are saved and the firstborn of Egypt are killed. And it's this set apart, this belonging to God. Zipporah here acts very quickly. Antithesis to Moses, mind you, who act very slowly. And actually Moses should have probably already had this done to begin with. But Zipporah acts with faith in God and displays a faith that follows him. And her act saves her son's life. And it is anticipating both the warning and then also this moment with Moses' son is anticipating this sort of culminating moment between Yahweh and Egypt with the plague of the firstborn son. All of this pointing to a grace a grace beyond measure. In all of this, in the rest of the chapter, we see God holding up His end of the promise, doing what He says He will do. Yes, God is unwieldy and unable to be domesticated and boxed into something that is manageable for us. God is over us, over all things. He is sovereign, and there are no doubts about that. And these moments like this here make me think of the scene in the book and also portrayed in the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Mr. Beaver answers the children about Aslan. They ask, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, is he safe? No, but he is good. God is grand and big, and those words fail me right now. He is over everything. Everything, everywhere, from giant stars bursting in the cosmos to the blade of grass that I can see with my eye. And everything in between will bow before Him. He is over all. But He is good. And he has grace beyond measure. And this is on the greatest display when we see it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Unlike Moses, Jesus took on the plan of redemption without apprehension. Even in the garden of Gethsemane, on the night that he would be betrayed, he didn't pass or shirk the cup. He took it. He took it. 
Jesus didn't balk or bail. He didn't whine or doubt. He, he, and he doesn't balk or bail on us now. Even if we feel like we're toggling around balking and bailing, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't bail on us. He didn't bail on the plan of redemption at the great cost that it came. And he doesn't bail on his people now. His rescuing work is sure. It's forever. It's final. It's incredible. And he continues to be that to his people now. Please be comforted with these words. I know we, I've drawn on them before, and I'm going to draw on them again and again because it seems like we have hearts that need this reminder. But Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, on, upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I know that you may feel as messy as Moses seems in this chapter. And you may think that God's nostrils are flaring with anger for you. Jesus came and did what we couldn't do. He came and took on the life that we could not live. And he lived it perfectly. And Jesus took on the penalty and the judgment for the way that we did live. And he paid it in full. There's nothing left for us to face. And Jesus displayed his power over sin and death and Satan, even in the moments in which it looked like they were winning. Like the provision of Aaron to Moses, to be his speaker, but better. Like the dismantling of the Egyptians' whole system of belief, but even more expansive. Like the gracious care to provide a Passover, but with eternity in mind, so is Jesus to us right now. Find rest in your souls. And may you find rest in your souls. In the gentle and lowly Jesus who prevails over sin and grave and Satan and your very own apprehensive heart. Find rest for your souls. And that rest will give you strength to follow him through your whole life. God prevails. He does so most graciously. May we know that, believe it, and live in light of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for hard passages. They display to us your character and your worth and your works. And God, I pray that our hearts would rest in that, rest in you who prevail. You prevail. And may that be a comfort to us. Thank you for prevailing through the person and work of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Before you close out your time together in corporate worship, we are hopeful and anticipating uh, seeing many of us together in person starting next week on Sunday, June 21st. 
We will have two services, 10.30 and 5 p.m. You'll be able to sign up for those services starting on Friday mornings. Uh, and so you'll go online, you'll fill out the form, and you'll register, if you will, uh, your household or the people that you would be bringing uh, in. And it gives us a chance to be best prepared for your arrival. In the week ahead, we'll be rolling out the things to expect and to see and to anticipate in terms of what it looks like to come. Um, so be on the lookout for that on our website, and we will try to get it in email and social media and other varieties of forms. Again, we are looking forward to being in person. We're going to try to do that as safely as we can, uh, but it will be great to be in the same place and to not preach to a screen or to a, a camera. Um, so uh, I'm excited for that. Again, if you have any questions, you can please reach out to us. You can email us at healthteam at trinitynh.org. Again, that email address is healthteam at trinitynh.org. All right. Now, close out your time and song with the benediction and your worship guide, and have a blessed week. We will see you next week.